Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the fifth panel of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's Global Dialogue Series for 2020 and 2021. I'm Paul Hanley. I'm the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, and I'm glad to be joined by colleagues and friends today, Dr. Rosa Belfour and Dr. Tsui Hong Jen, to discuss how the European Union is navigating rising tensions between China and the United States. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is the ninth year that we have been hosting this series of events. Uh, it consists basically of a series of panel discussions examining China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars across the globe. Uh, Carnegie has uh, six global centers. Uh, this panel is the fifth and last panel of the Car Carnegie Global Dialogue series for this academic year. Uh, our last four discussions have focused on US-China, China-India, China-Russia, China-Middle East, and today, of course, China-EU. And for anyone who wants to go rewatch uh, this discussion or, or watch any of our previous discussions, you can see the replays on the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's uh, China in the World podcast uh, site. Uh, the podcast is a series of discussions uh, that I hope with uh, that I host with Chinese and international experts. Uh, we have recorded over 150 uh, episodes, and so in addition to going back and watching our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, you'll see a number of conversations there that you might be interested in. Turning to today's discussion, um, I'd like to uh, start by introducing our distinguished uh, experts. Dr. Rosa Belfour and Dr. Tsui Hong Jen. Uh, Rosa is coming in this morning uh, from Brussels, Belgium, where she is the director of the Carnegie Europe Center. Uh, so a colleague of mine at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, my, my counterpart there in Brussels. Uh, her fields of expertise include European politics and institutions, foreign policy and security policy. Uh, in addition to her role with Carnegie, she's a member of the Steering Committee of Women in International Security Brussels, uh, and she's an Associate Fellow at London School of Economics uh, Ideas, the foreign policy think tank there. Uh, she was awarded a fellowship on the Europe's Futures Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna in 2018 and 2019. And earlier this year became an honorary patron of the University Association for Contemporary European Studies. Delighted to ho host uh, Rosa this morning. Thank you for joining us. And in Beijing, China, um, we have Dr. Tsui Hong Jen, who has participated in our Carnegie Global Dialogue series in years past. So we're delighted to have him back with us. Uh, Dr. Tsui is the director of the Department of European Studies at the China Institute for International Studies, well-known uh, think tank in Beijing. In 2016, uh, Dr. Tsui participated in our third annual Carnegie Global Dialogue series. Uh, he's participated in other events at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. He's an expert on European and Chinese diplomacy, and he's been working uh, at his institute uh, since 1998. 
He also serves as the director at the Chinese Association for European Studies. He's the executive director of the Center for European Studies of, of the China Foundation for International Studies. And he's the director at the China Economic and Social Council. I don't think we could find uh, two better experts to uh, have our discussion this morning. Today's discussion will focus, uh, and thank you, Dr. Sway, for joining us. Today's discussion will focus on the trilateral dynamics between the European Union, China, and the United States. There's been uh, recently major shifts in the EU's relations with both China and the United States. We'll talk about both this morning. Uh, in 2020, China overtook the United States to become Europe's largest trading partner, and economic ties between China and the EU uh, show no sign of abating as Brussels and Beijing signed the long-awaited comprehensive agreement on, uh, on investment in December of last year. Growth and economic ties, however, have accelerated at a time where there are political frictions, and those polit political frictions seem to be sharpening. In March, the EU joined Canada, the UK, and the United States in sanctioning several Chinese officials, as well as one Chinese SOE, for alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and China responded very quickly with sanctions of its own, targeting 10 individuals and four organizations with, within the EU. As a result, last week, the EU Parliament voted overwhelmingly to freeze the comprehensive agreement on investment. On the opposite side of the globe, uh, transatlantic ties have begun to regain some of the ground that was lost over the past four years during the Trump administration. President Biden has recommitted to working with partners in the EU to address a range of issues, including climate change, nonproliferation, global governance, uh, and indeed on issues related to the challenges that we face with China. And the administration has been incredibly proactive in reaching out and finding common ground with Brussels and individual European nations. But there still remain concerns in Brussels about whether the U.S. over the long term will be a reliable partner, given the uncertainties in transatlantic ties over the past four years. And so to explore these uh, shifting trends, which I've uh, very briefly outlined, and to discuss EU's shifting relations with China and the United States, uh, we're very fortunate to have with us Rosa Balfour and Dr. Tsui Hongzhen. Uh, so let's begin uh, with the European perspective, Rosa. Uh, I wanted to first start out with the new Biden administration uh, coming into office uh, in January. Um, you know, how effective has the Biden, in your view, how, how effective has the administration been at beginning the process of repairing those the transatlantic uh, ties? You wrote an article uh, for Carnegie in April uh, where you noted that Brussels has, has welcomed the Biden administration's return to multilateralism. Uh, that uh, Brussels has welcomed the United States rejoining the Paris Accords, rejoining the WHO, the World Health Organization, and restarting talks on the Iran nuclear deal. But you also note that the EU is taking a bit of a wait and see approach, looking for instead of um, uh, more instead of looking looking for deeds from the new administration more than words. So I think the way your article talked about it. Um, what, what does the administration need to do um, to 
convince uh, the EU that the United States is back and, and what more needs to be done? What challenges remain in the way of repairing the transatlantic ties? Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you for inviting me to join you. <clears throat> I'm delighted to be with you, and I hope next year we'll be in person rather than virtually. Um, indeed, the I think we should not underestimate the degree to which the Trump years were a big shock for Europeans. And the uh, shadow is always there in the background that come 2024, there might be a return of Trumpism in one form or another, and that the EU will be left out in the cold again. And this means that um, the EU is, is somewhat more cautious in, um, in embracing um, um, a critically US positions, US demands. Um, which also means that while the rhetoric and the language and the messaging used by the Biden administration, which is, which I personally think is a, represents a significant shift, even by comparison to previous administrations that were benign towards Europe. Um, uh, both Blinken and Biden have been going out of their way to say they want to listen to what partners have to say. And this is music to the ears of Europeans. They want their voice heard and their opinions taken into account. Uh, because only that way the US will understand the strategic dilemmas that Europe finds itself in um, with respect to relationships with other countries, including, um, of course, uh, China. But the proof will be in the pudding, and it really will depend on the degree to which um, the US and the EU will cooperate. Um, just to give one example, when um, the US announced unilaterally without prior consultation that it intended to drop the patent with regard to COVID vaccines, Europeans did not appreciate that. It's not just because they have a different position as to what is most effective to help solve the global coronavirus pandemic, but it's also that they were not consulted prior to this announcement. And, and that's really where a lot of sensitivities go um, within the EU. It's you know, the unilateralism of the past four years and is how, to what degree is that being overcome? Uh, having said this, the EU and the US are engaging in several conversations, some of which are quite practical, um, for instance, looking at trade or corporate taxation. These processes will continue um, and are likely to smoothen out many of the differences, the transatlantic differences. And then, of course, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have all the big events taking place in Europe, the NATO summit, the EU-US summit, uh, several bilateral visits on the margins of this. Um, and, and that will really show us, give us an indication of where things are going. With respect to China, and I think perhaps let's just focus on this somewhat, the, um, I think there are two issues. The first is that um, the EU is, has been, um, I mean, it's been jerked into uh, a greater awareness about the type of challenges that, and opportunities that China poses to Europe. Huh? So we have come from a decade or more in which Europe viewed China principally through business lens as a large, you know, great uh, economic opportunities. Um, and um, this was driven by the belief that China would be socialized into the international system, into the multilateral system, which was in the interests of, of the EU. Then with the Trump years, Trump has been posing black and white questions, either with us or without us. That is something the EU does not appreciate. We have precedents of this, for instance, 2003 with Iraq. Um, 
the EU prefers a much more nuanced position, but it also raised awareness of a certain uh, dimension of the challenges that China poses to Europe. And so Europe has been changing its policy basically since uh, 2019. So where do things stand now? Um, the first point is the degree to which the US is willing to accept that the EU will is likely to always have a nuanced policy towards China and any other actor, um, and that it's not going to embrace black and white language about international relations. Um, it does not see uh, geopolitics uh, in terms of great power rivalry. That's not how the EU plots itself on the global map. Um, and um, so, that, so that is um, the, the first point. Um, the second, however, is that we're seeing greater awareness of the several challenges uh, that China is bringing about and, and, and the challenges that the Trump years brought about and both these are pushing the EU in a, in a direction which is focusing a bit more intensely on what are its core strategic interests, what can it achieve alone, where is, there's a whole new debate on Europe's strategic autonomy. And in this framework, under this rubric, um, there's several developments that are taking place, and we can talk about them further if you mm -hmm. want, um, which will have implications both for US-EU relations, but also for uh, EU-China relations. Well, th thank you for that excellent uh, uh, scene setter, uh, which is going to be really helpful. I do want to come back to strategic autonomy as well. Um, but, you know, your points on, you know, the four years of the Trump administration, big shock to Europe. Um, and, you know, there's still a shadow hanging. And as you said, uh, you're, the EU is, is, is looking for uh, proof in the proof will be in the pudding. And so in a sense, this is an important period for transatlantic ties because anything that looks like the language, the rhetoric isn't matched by the deeds will, will, be, will be highlighted, will be magnified. Um, and so uh, this is an important period. Your points on China are, are critical. Um, the more nuanced views in looking at China perhaps than the United States, although I don't expect the Biden team to use the same approach that the Trump administration used. You're either with us or you're without us. I think the, this administration recognizes that countries and regions around the world have interests with regard to China, um, but there are also some challenges that they wanna deal with. And so um, I hope that that aspect of things will be much better in the Biden administration than we saw in the Trump administration, because as you said, this black and white language doesn't really work uh, in the European context. Um, and then, of course, your point about challenges, not just from China, but also over the last four years from the United States. And that brings up the question about, as you said, what are Europe's core strategic interests and this notion of strategic autonomy? So terrific uh, scene setter. And with this, I want to turn to Dr. Tsui. Um, and I want to sort of get your perspective on both the warming transatlantic ties between the United States and the EU from a Chinese perspective, how do you see those? Um, and then, you know, looking of course at the current state of the China EU relationship, you know, China's had a long, has long upheld the China EU relationship as a model of a stable and mutually beneficial relationship. But as in, in recent months as, I, months, as I mentioned before, there appear to be some growing uncertainties. 
Uh, you remarked in a recent uh, interview with the Global Times that the EU is following in the footsteps of the United States by putting pressure on China. Um, and is this, in your view, is this what's happening? Are these the dynamics that the US is pressuring the EU? Or is this uh, something that is has come about over the last four years and a bit of a reevaluation? Rosa mentioned that since 2019, the EU has had shifting views on China. And of course, the US-China strategic outlook, uh, which came out and called China a uh, economic competitor and a systemic rival in advancing alternative forms of global governance. How much of this is because of pressure from the United States? How much of this is simply the EU taking its own interests at heart and coming up with its own analysis? So I'd be interested in your perspective, both on transatlantic ties, but also China-EU ties. Okay, thank you, uh, Paul, and especially for the uh, Carnegie Tsinghua Center and for this opportunity and also uh, this uh, very big question. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to uh, give you uh, uh, my point. I think firstly, regarding to this uh, perspective from mine about this uh, transatlantic relations, uh, especially uh, since the uh, 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 Biden administration uh, taken the power, took the power. I think, uh, according to my understanding, that uh, now uh, undoubtedly because of the change of the uh, approaches and also uh, even the uh, uh, doctrine from uh, uh, Biden administration comparing with uh, Trump administration, so at the first time we can find a very active reaction from the uh, 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 European side, and even uh, at this moment I think it's uh, a little bit different from uh, history that. Uh, uh, the European side tried to get some more positive uh, posture in this uh, uh, transatlantic Atlantic relations because I think that uh, still uh, for European countries, for European Union, they do have the, uh, I mean, uh, some suspicion for this um, maybe the sustainable uh, Biden uh, administration's policy towards uh, Europe. If we uh, look at the, how to say, the political uh, resources for Biden administration, and especially uh, still uh, a lot of uh, supporters uh, or a lot of the uh, popularity of uh, Trump's uh, policy towards Europe in United States. So I think now this time, uh, European side try to get some a little bit more equal partnership with the United States. If we look at this uh, <clears throat> new agenda for uh, transatlantic uh, uh, partnership issued by European Union, and also uh, 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 emphasize of the uh, uh, some European leaders on so-called strategic autonomy and some other. But of course, I think now so far uh, they did, I think, a good job for uh, United States and the European side to have some more coordination, especially in a political area. If we look at this, some. Uh, uh, some more uh, announcement or declaration about the so-called uh, coordination of uh, uh, venue or, or even some more uh, maybe polit uh, political uh, coordination on so-called, uh, uh, I mean, uh, allies of uh, democracy and some other. Of course, another, I think uh, so far, 
achievement for its uh, coordination between uh, United States and the European Union is they try to coordinate the policy, their policies on China and also on Russia. <clears throat> but of course, so far, it's just, uh, I think, the first round for this uh, coordination uh, between two sides. Uh, but now, uh, for this, um, uh, I mean, cooperation or coordination between U uh, European side and the United States, still, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, uh, test, case, test cases. For example, how could they uh, deal with their own problem, including, as we know so far, the economic and the trade issue? Not yet. I think this time, especially the forthcoming summit between US and the European Union would be a, a good opportunity for us to test if they have their own, I mean, winning, especially from the American side to deal with some difficult issue. And also regarding to some other, like uh, uh, Lord Stream 2 and also uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal, all of these, uh, uh, I mean, issues still uh, on the table. So I think that would be the real, I mean, uh, cases to test if there is a real, uh, as we understand, a kind of uh, uh, repair of uh, uh, transatlantic relations and also rebuild of uh, transatlantic relations. Regarding to this uh, uh, question you mentioned about China and the EU, I agree with uh, uh, Madam Rosa that uh, it started from this, uh, uh, I mean, uh, 2019, especially the strategic document issued by European Union, tried to change uh, this um, definition uh, of its relations with China with a kind of uh, multifaceted uh, uh, description of uh, China, uh, uh, including the uh, 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 partner, uh, competitor, and the rival. Uh, I think still now, um, from China's perspective, especially from uh, official, uh, official uh, stand, uh, China will not accept this kind of uh, change of uh, mindset of European side. Uh, still, even yesterday, uh, the Minister Wang uh, still tried to, uh, you know, uh, change the mindset of the European side by pointing out that, uh, by pointing out that uh, there is only single, I mean, uh, definition about the China-EU relation is a comprehensive strategic partnership. I think uh, it, it shows a lot of the, uh, I mean, uh, difference between the mindset uh, between China and the EU on the on these kind of uh, relations. For China, always, China tried to get a more positive uh, uh, framework for its relations with the European side, especially in the background of uh, China-US competition. But of course, I think for European side that uh, on one hand, European side tried to give some more pressure to China, especially to get some more sustainable uh, benefits, not only for uh, uh, economic cooperation and the market in China, and also try to get some more, I think, uh, leverage uh, towards China, especially when China become, I mean, powerful and powerful, always European side try to get some more instrument to have some more uh, influence to China. Just like what happened recently, uh, as uh, Paul mentioned that uh, this uh, uh, exchange of um, 
I mean, sanctions in a, a human rights issue. I think it gives a, a more complicated situation now for, Ch for China and the EU is, on one hand, they do have a lot of the uh, uh, common interests in economic and trade. If we look at the CAI, and CAI means that uh, still both two sides uh, realized that uh, there are a lot of uh, potential for cooperation. But at the same time, in a political and human rights issue, and uh, especially from a European side, European side tried to uh, find out a more, I mean, maybe a powerful instrument to uh, impose more impact or influence to China. Once China getting, uh, I mean, uh, powerful and powerful. So I think now the question for China and the EU, especially from China's perspective, is how could both two sides to get a kind of a balance <clears throat> between two between two different mindsets. I mean, for China, always China stressed the importance of the uh, uh, of having a more positive framework. But at the same time, from European side, always try to get a balanced uh, a balancing framework for these relations. But now the question for European side is, uh, European uh, Union try to have this uh, balancing. And in different areas, we do have a uh, we do have a different uh, logic to deal with. But uh, the recent case for this uh, uh, human rights sanction and the CAI, especially the European Parliament, stop its uh, process to ratificate uh, the uh, CAI, give a very very big lesson to European side is European side could not manage it. Uh, I mean. Uh, very well, especially <clears throat> how could the European uh, Union institution, I mean, for the Council, for the Commission, to deal with this uh, challenge from the uh, European Parliament. So once it happened like this way, I, I don't think that, uh, uh, I mean, there will be a, a good situation for European side to manage its relations with China. But of course, recently, I think, uh, especially from China's side, it tried to get some more positive, uh, uh, I mean, uh, interaction with some uh, member states of the European Union. So I think now, <clears throat> perhaps, uh, if we try to have some more optimistic, I mean, perspective on China-Europe uh, relations, perhaps that uh, firstly, uh, China will try to uh, maybe uh, find out uh, uh, more uh, panorama, I mean, uh, 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 vision, not only for European Parliament, just for some single uh, member states, and also try China try to get some more, I mean, uh, uh, multi-level uh, uh, engagement with the European side. And also at the same time, China also try to find the more, I mean, very special driving force for its relations with the European side, not always get some influence from uh, relations between China and the United States. So I should stop here. Thank you very much, Dr. Tsui. I wanna, I wanna turn to the, 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 the investment agreement, but before I do that, I wanna give Rosa an opportunity maybe to respond to some of what you said regarding this, you know, China is looking for a more positive engagement with the EU, more balance. And I hear Dr. Tsui some concern uh, that you're expressing by what you see as a, a, a new revitalized EU approach may not bring that as I understand it. But let me 
uh, let me ask Rosa if she wants to respond to anything that you said. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. Um, I do, I mean, when, you know, you sent out a rather big question, can, can the EU navigate through this? And I think some of the remarks also go in the degree to which the EU is actually capable of designing uh, a policy um, to deal with uh, US-China rivalry and Europe's role therein. So I thought maybe the best way to think about this is actually to deconstruct the EU because it's a complex entity and just look at the areas where the EU, how issues are evolving in several areas which are of relevance to relations with China. And I think the first area is the single market and trade. The second area is the, the post-pandemic recovery and the whole debate on strategic autonomy. The third area is the relationship between member states and China. And the fourth is foreign policy. Now, let me try to do this briefly. On the single market, be it because of uh, the uh, forced um, securitization of the economics agenda, um, thanks to Trump, Europeans are increasingly concerned about the coupling of security issues and economic issues with respect to Chinese investments. And what is happening, and we've seen this with Brexit, the EU is actually very strong when it comes to protecting its single market. It has teeth. And what we're seeing is that there's a growing uh, set of proposals on investment screening, on public procurement, and all these will be difficult for China to deal with because it, it's, it's beginning to, uh, you know, Europeans are beginning to raise some barriers to certain kinds of investments in Europe. And this is going to continue. It's not going to come to an end um, because it's about the integrity of the single market. It's not just about the relationship between the EU and China, and it's not just about transatlantic relations. Second area, um, I'm calling it post-pandemic recovery. Let's put it all in one basket. But shall we say the pandemic has accelerated a set of debates in the EU about um, its economic recovery, about its economic future, about supply chains, about its industrial strategy, um, the type of dependencies it has, and also raw materials, given that we're moving into an area in which the EU and China are committed to transforming the economy in, in a digital and green direction. Um, in doing, in carrying out these, if you look at the exercises that are being carried out um, through in order to design a new industrial strategy or in order to design supply, supply chains, EU member states and EU institutions are looking critically at those areas where there are several dependencies with China. So we're actually in the areas where the EU has competences, we're moving in a direction where the, 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 the game is gonna get a little bit harder. On trade as well, um, the EU and some member states are passing legislation making private companies responsible for the human rights and labour standards in their, in their own supply chains and in their own networks abroad. Again, this will have an impact. So while we, you know, we look at the comprehensive agreement on investments that was signed in December, then we look at the sanctions two months later, the sanctions um, issued against uh, several individuals and one um, entity. And we see a contradiction. On the one hand, you see the EU wanting to do business. On the other hand, you see the EU, um, you know, concerned about human rights issues. These two strands coexist. 
because of public opinion, but also because of the way in which you, the European economy is investing in its future post-pandemic, post-Trump, and in the context of geopolitical rivalry. Then, if we look at this other third layer, which is the relationship between China and member states, and we know that this has seen a huge expansion in the past decade or so. Um, Chinese investments have been very um, helpful to some of the countries, especially during the Eurozone crisis, that were very hard hit, both by the crisis, but also by the measures that Brussels put in place, the austerity measures. And so we know that there's several countries on Europe's periphery that have been quite open to Chinese economic investments in infrastructure and all sorts of issues. But these countries, or at least some of them, are also strategically dependent on the US as far as security is concerned. So their strategic dilemma changes uh, the moment in which you know, policies, you know, the moment in which the transatlantic relationship gets um, a little bit better. And here we see a very mixed picture. And then, of course, we have Germany, which has, you know, export, a great exporter to China, which has a different set of interests by comparison to, say, Greece, which is a net, um, you know, which, which is a country that has accepted a lot of investments from China. So there's a lot of nuance among the member states that makes it difficult to forge a common policy. So we have single market where the EU is strong, post-pandemic recovery where the EU is making huge investments. These are complicated for China. Member states... Uh, relations with China, nuanced picture, hard for the EU to create, to forge a foreign, uh, common policy. And then we have foreign policy, um, diplomacy. And here, um, the EU, I, I think, has pretty strong instinct towards dialogue, wants to keep channels open. Um, it feels that over, overall, it, it tries to do this also with other countries. It's tried to seek dialogue with Russia with, without much success um, recently. But I think that door will be potentially open. But of course, human rights issues will continue to stand in the way. One area where dialogue is greatly encouraged, and I think it's not just in the EU, but also in the US, is on climate issues and recognition that things need to be done um, together. So. So, so this is the picture. It's, it's a fragmented picture on the EU side, but I think there are some issues, and I mentioned single market and post-pandemic recovery, where the logic driving EU action is not just tied to geopolitical rivalry and the US. There is an internal logic, which is an, a logic about seeking a, you know, a new role, seeking new sources um, to support the economic recovery in a green and digital di direction, the, the, this logic is deeply European and, and um, will have consequences on the, relationships with, on the relationship with China. Thank you, Rosa. Um, you know, Dr. Tsui, you know, talked about the uh, strategic uh, uh, document that was published in 2019, called it a, 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 a partnership, competition, and rivalry which China has a hard time accepting. And you've just laid that out, I think very well in a comprehensive way that there are elements where China wants to partner uh, with, or the EU wants to partner with China. There are elements where the EU will compete with China and there are elements where it is much, there's, there's a greater friction, um, more rivalry. I'm getting a lot of questions from the audience about the comprehensive agreement on investment. And I think people want to know um, what's going to happen. Uh, as I mentioned in December, the EU 
the European Commission and China agreed in principle to a large scale investment agreement, which would have significantly relaxed joint venture requirements for European firms operating in several sectors in China, healthcare, automobile manufacturing, financial services. The agreement was seen as a major milestone in EU-China relations and, and was set to facilitate greater amounts of trade investment between the two uh, trade uh, regions. Um, a lot of questions coming in about, you know, what lies ahead for the CAI and is it possible to salvage the deal? Uh, and, and for that, maybe I'll turn to Dr. Tsui and I'd be interested in your perspective and then I'll turn to Rosa. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> regarding to this uh, issue about the CAI, as you know, uh, from our uh, European uh, uh, colleagues, they always call this a Kai. Uh, but as you know, from Chinese, especially from Chinese language uh, pronunciation, we call this a Chai. Chai means dish. So it's a very interesting question is which dish, uh, which, which uh, I mean, which dish for, for who? <laughs> I think now, uh, because of as we know this uh, uh, problem of the uh, human rights issue, now the CAI has been stopped in European Parliament, and uh, I think from China's perspective, uh, still I think China will try to uh, push it forward, and uh, because I think China regarded it as a, I mean, promise uh, with each other. I mean, between China and the European Union. And also it gives, a, a, I think, a big uh, uh, meaning for China to continue its uh, opening up and the reform process. So it's very important for China to have this uh, tie. Huh? But regarding to this, some, uh, if we take some, I mean, view on short-term, mid-term or long-term benefits for both the sides, certainly, uh, for European side, it will get uh, most of uh, uh, short-term benefits because the CAI means uh, opening a lot of the, uh, uh, I mean, markets and also sectors for investors from European uh, countries. So now I think it gives a very uh, big question for European side, especially uh, this, um, I mean, interaction between the European Parliament and other European Union institutions and even uh, between European Union institutions and the member states and also between the business uh, cycle and the um, politicians. So I think now uh, the, the, the boy is the, the uh, in the court of the European side. But of course, now I think that China also try to uh, have some more positive, uh, I mean, attitude towards this uh, uh, I mean, say, I, if we look at uh, what happened recently, uh, the President Xi uh, ha had a call conversation with some uh, telephone call conversation with some European leaders. And also recently, several uh, foreign minister, uh, ministers of European countries related to China, uh, they try to have a message, not only, I mean, to uh, European people, and also, I think, for European Union institutions that both two sides need the CAI. So I think now, uh, perhaps uh, maybe next year, uh, we can looking forward to some uh, maybe, I think, positive 
change of especially for the environment. I don't think that uh, if just uh, for for the reason of the European Parliament, the CI has been stopped. Finally, I don't think it's a good case for European side to have its own strategic autonomy and to have a more, I mean, a sustainable cooperation with China uh, in economic and the trade. If we look at the recent uh, data, uh, stati uh, statistic of the uh, bilateral trade and the investment, a lot of, uh, I mean, increase from, uh, I mean, this January and uh, to uh, April, uh, even uh, more than 70%, I mean, uh, increase of uh, investment for, from European country to China. So once there is not a CAI, I don't know how could the European side to keep this uh, trend of the, uh, I mean, battle trade and investment uh, increase. Dr. Tsui, we've got a couple questions coming in for you on, on this particular issue. Um, one question, this was one of the first high profile examples of China issuing retaliatory sanctions against the EU. Um, some, and I'm talking now about the response to the EU, UK, US sanctions that have really put the CAI in a difficult position. Um, many were surprised China went as far to sanction uh, private citizens affiliated with NGOs. Uh, question is, are you concerned Chinese actions may be alienating partners in Europe? And also um, from Mater Thomas, uh, why did Beijing escalate sanctions by targeting individual China experts in the EU? Isn't that a self-defeating move? So a couple questions on the sanctions for you. Thank you for all of these uh, questions. And uh, I think they are very important questions to help us to understand uh, what is uh, uh, the stand for Chinese government to have this uh, retaliation on the, uh, uh, against the sanctions from the European side. I think if we look at these uh, uh, reactions from the Chinese side, uh, China tried to deliver the message to European Union side is uh, China don't want to have a kind of, uh, how to say, a long time exchange of sanction and uh, uh, counter sanctions in human rights area. Maybe China tried to give a message to European side is we should stop here. Uh, because I think that uh, according to the uh, understanding from China side about the human rights, always China don't think that uh, not only European side and also United States should not be, uh, I mean, political zone of teaching China what's uh, human rights and how to improve human rights like that. And secondly, I think that the China tried to, uh, I mean, give the message to uh, European side is, uh, because as we know, uh, in this uh, human rights uh, area, China, the European Union, and China, some, and some other uh, member states of the European Union, uh, they do have a, a human rights dialogue. Even there are a lot of uh, complaints from European side that uh, it doesn't work and no effect uh, for this uh, dialogue. But China still try to insist that uh, the dialogue should be the single right approach for both China and the EU to touch the issue of human rights, not a sanction itself. And maybe third is, because as we know, uh, this uh, global human rights sanction regime issued by European Union side last uh, December. At that time, 
and uh, uh, namely that uh, uh, this uh, uh, regime uh, will uh, target Russia. So I don't think that the China regarded itself as the same like uh, Russia. <laughs> so I think it's a little bit out of the expectation from China that uh, yes, you you have this uh, sanction against uh, Russia, but then you have a sanction against me. So I think that uh, for China that to, to have this uh, reaction uh, would be understandable for, for itself. Well, regarding to this uh, scale of this uh, counter sanction, I think uh, you can find that China also tried to give a message through this uh, uh, counter sanction is uh, China, just like I mentioned, China tried to say stop here. Because if you look at the list uh, of this uh, uh, counter sanction from the Chinese side, not only some uh, institution or personnel uh, who be related to uh, Xinjiang issue and also with almost uh, every uh, issue related to Chinese, uh, I mean, domestic affairs, including Tibet, Taiwan, or even Hong Kong, some other. So I think it shows that China uh, tried to, uh, you know, in China uh, recently, uh, there is a very popular, uh, I mean, uh, uh, sentence to describe this uh, situation. How could China to deal with the issues with uh, uh, other countries is once you don't want to have some more, uh, I mean, uh, strike, you should have a, I mean, uh, a heavier uh, strike uh, than somebody else. I think that should be a, a, a very, very uh, interesting, I mean, mindset of China to deal with this issue. But of course, now I think that uh, for China and the EU, because it's just the first time, especially in the background of the, uh, I mean, uh, human rights sanction regime uh, issued by European Union. But now I think because of the first time, first round, maybe for the uh, future, both sides should get some, I mean, I, I, I think that a kind of a consensus, how to deal with this uh, sanction and the counter sanction uh, issue. Because anyway, according to my understanding, the most important thing for China and EU is we need to avoid uh, some more uncertainties uh, in this uh, bilateral relations. Thank you, Dr. Tsui. Um, Rosa, a lot there to respond to, um, but also the original question about the comprehensive agreement uh, for investment, the CAI, what's in store and, and is it possible to salvage the deal? It seems like a key example of what you've been describing, the the balance that uh, you, the EU is trying to reach. You've got the European business community very much in favor of ratifying the CAI, yet the EU parliament voted overwhelmingly to freeze the deal. Um, and they're obviously the balance between economic interests and upholding European values there is very much at play. Yeah, I have to say, I agree very much that with the idea that the EU and China, they surprised each other with the sanctions. I think China was not expecting them from the EU. And the EU certainly was not expecting um, that retaliation and that at, especially at that level. Um, and insofar as those Chinese um, sanctions are, will be in place, the debate is not going to take place in the European Parliament. That's clear. There needs to be, China would need to climb back um, on the scale um, of sanctions um, in order for that debate to take place. 
Um, however, were that to happen, which means that the ball is actually in Beijing's course rather than in the EU's course in this, in this particular case, um, which means if that were to happen and if uh, those who have been the strongest advocates of the comprehensive agreement in the first instance were, man were, were to persuade other elements of the EU institutional um, and EU member states, the sort of setup, um, it is possible that the CHI does resurface. Um, technically, the European Parliament, because of the nature of the agreement, doesn't have to go through a full ratification. It's more assent. So what's being frozen is the debate on the comprehensive agreement on investments. Um, so, and that it will continue to be the case for the whole of 2021, 2022, things could change. However, in the meantime, we also have elections in Germany. Um, and at the moment, the Green Party is polling quite well. Um, and the Green Party has a long-standing um, uh, foreign policy, which is uh, embedded in human rights support and which is much more critical of China than the um, uh, foreign policies of the, the current parties in the coalition. Um, and the debate in Germany itself is changing. Even the German industrial sector is beginning to be critical of human rights standards in China, of labor standards, and also of the nature of the dependencies with China. So these things are actually shifting. And I, I do see um, uh, that the tide is, is going against um, seamless uh, business relations between the EU um, and China on human rights grounds, on grounds of uh, insufficient reciprocity, which is something the business communities in the EU have always not appreciated, um, and on the grounds of public opinion, um, perhaps because of the coronavirus pandemic, perhaps because of a, an increased investment on um, um, international diplomacy on part of China, Europeans are somewhat more aware um, and, and they're not always appreciative of what we, what we call uh, the warrior wolf diplomacy. So things are changing somewhat, um, which I think make it difficult for the comprehensive agreement on investments to come back, at least in the, in the original, in the formulation that we've seen so far. Uh, the other thing is not to forget um, the studies that have been coming out show that the comprehensive agreement on investments would indeed benefit a handful of businesses located mostly in Germany, which means that you need to get, you know, the consensus also of the other member states, of other sectors. Um, so I think it's going to be slightly harder, uh, but technically it is possible. It's, it's going to be slightly harder to go back to the CHI, but technically it is possible because Parliament actually does not need to ratify the deal. It's just a question of assent. So certain, at the moment, it has frozen the debate, which means that there's no, it's not scheduled in the legislative, in the, in the, um, you know, the, 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 the plans of, of the European Parliament. They haven't scheduled it. So it won't be, if any, if at all, at the end of 2021. Uh, but technically, it is possible to resuscitate it. But politically, the conditions don't seem to be there. Thank you, Rosa. Um, we've got just a few minutes left, and. You know, we've we've talked about the Europe, the uh, European Strategic Outlook, um, published by the European Commission in 2019, and the aspect of systemic rival. Um, and this is, you know, we've got a couple years on now with this, but there's a perception uh, in the EU we can take from that that uh, China is promoting alternative models of governance. Um, Chinese officials, on the other hand, say, you know, China does not 
promote its values or political principles in the international system. So a couple questions, uh, one for uh, Rosa, in what areas uh, does the EU consider China to be a, you know, quote unquote, systemic rival? Uh, human rights, technology standards, economic governance, other other uh, aspects, and does the label relate more to China's international system of governments, governance, or its promotion of an alternative model of global governance? And have views in the EU changed at all since the release two years ago of the strategic outlook? And then uh, I'll turn to uh, uh, Dr. Tsui after that. First, over to you, Rosa. Yeah, I do think it's it's gradual. Uh, it's a patchwork change, but I do think views are changing. And I would add to the to the areas that you uh, looked at: global governance. Um, I mean, you know, WHO. And now that Biden has suggested that there ought to be an, an, another investigation into the origin of the coronavirus, um, all these really bring about a lot of distrust of China's role in multi, multilateral institutions. And I think also. The, what China's doing in Asia. And I think from the European perspective, the um, Europe has, and it's, it's not new, um, has been very concerned about uh, maritime routes, the security of maritime routes. And I think this is another area where we'll see the EU um, double down, it, commensurately with its resources, its military and naval resources. Mm. Uh, but it will be making commitments because that is again about uh, securing supply chains. It's about uh, predictability of trade. Um, and it, it, it refers to all those areas that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, single market, trade, this is where the EU is strong, and it's prepared to pull out its claws to defend those assets. Mm. Um, so I would add that to it. I think on the global governance dimension, that is very tricky. Um, because the EU is by nature and by through its DNA is multilateral. And its ultimate goal for its own survival really is to protect the multilateral system. And I think at the moment, the US is an ally in this, but the US has not always been an ally in supporting the multilateral system, mm. number one. Number two, some of the problems of the multilateral system stem from the fact that it's been hegemonically Western driven. Um, so how to embrace, include, diversify different voices whilst respecting the rules of the game. And we're seeing that these days, not all are respecting the rules of the game. We're also seeing that some are saying, well, actually you haven't, you West haven't been respecting the rules of the game, so why should we? So I think this is actually where some dilemmas really might um, close in at some point um, it, for Europeans, but also for the transatlantic relationship. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Tsui, you're gonna get the last word this morning here um, as we're running up on our time. How does China view the EU's characterization of China as a systemic rival? Uh, and do you think China's vision of global governance, how is it different from that of the EU or other countries uh, in the West, in the broader West? And, you know, is it, is it manageable here between, the chi between China and the e EU? Can, China, can, can the two sides manage their differences over glo global governance issues? Hmm. I think maybe from my uh, perspective on this issue of the uh, uh, European side regarded China as a systemic rival, I think um, partly it's a kind of an emotional reaction from a European side. 
because also in the uh, recent years, uh, gradually more and more European uh, countries or leaders regarded themselves as the uh, loser of the so-called globalization. Also at the same time, to uh, think China is a winner uh, of the uh, globalization. So how could find out this uh, little sum game uh, between winner and the loser? So always uh, European side try to find out some uh, uh, systemical uh, factors uh, for, from China to, pro uh, to prove that uh, the loss of uh, European is not its own fault. It's because of, uh, I mean, a kind of uh, uh, unfair competition from China. And then they're trying to find out a systemic reason to find out a, a, some more uh, difference between systems between China and Europe, countries like that. And of, of course, as I think secondly, uh, for this, uh, 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 I mean, uh, for this, uh, 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 I mean, perspective from the European side on China is uh, always uh, a kind of uh, less and less self-confidence from European side and more and more self-confidence from China. We can find a very, uh, I mean, uh, interesting change of this uh, self-esteem uh, from both two sides. It also gives us some uh, uh, stimulation to European side to uh, find out more uh, problems or challenges from China. Of course, now regarding to this uh, cooperation between China and EU on uh, uh, global governance, like you mentioned that, uh, I think still both sides uh, uh, insist that uh, uh, global governance and to have some more multilateral cooperation to uh, uphold this uh, uh, multilateralism would be a bigger or major uh, cooperation areas for both sides. So I hope that uh, especially this year, the second half of this year, uh, this uh, cooperation between China, US and the European Union on climate change would be, and also I think a positive I mean, Ariel. Otherwise, perhaps um, not only for China and the European Union, not only for China and the U.S., maybe for the uh, I mean international community, we will we will lose the I mean the hope for some more cooperation between uh, uh, bigger players. Well, Dr. Tsui, thank you. I, I suspect Rosa would have a lot to say in response to that, but unfortunately we are up on our time. Perhaps we can have a whole different session on global governance issues because um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, threads there to pull. Uh, but I wanna thank both of you uh, for your time this morning. And I thought it was a very rich discussion um, and I appreciate your candor um, and uh, your uh, comprehensive way of addressing these um, these issues and uh, hope to have you back in person maybe next year uh, live face to face uh, for our next Carnegie Global Dialogue China EU but thank you very much for joining us this year thank you thank you thank you for listening to the China in the world podcast for more episodes and research please go to carnegiechinghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Cheyenne with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Chi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.